So I'm going to start today with something I don't do very often. I'm going to start with a with a miracle story. And very often when we hear sort of miracle stories from different traditions, we can ask implicitly, even if we don't want to, did it really happen or didn't it? Well, I think sometimes when we think that, that's sort of actually falling into a, a trap set by a literalist mindset, by a biblical literalist mindset. Did it happen or not is not as important as the question, what does it mean? What does it mean? That's the meaning of what a professor of mine called the Bible as sacred literature sacred literature, and when we think about the stories that matter most to you, the stories that matter most in your life, we can't say, or you wouldn't ask, the fact that it didn't happen or there's doubt about it happening, that somehow it doesn't mean something to you. Hamlet didn't happen. Winnie the Pooh didn't happen. And yes, for my English professors, I just put Hamlet and Winnie the Pooh in the same sentence. But they are both inspirational for different reasons. So the story I'm going to talk about right now whether or not it happened, it's more important about what it signifies, what it means for us. It's the loaves and fishes story from the Christian scriptures, sometimes called the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 4,000. Sometimes there are five fish, sometimes there are seven fish, sometimes there are two loaves, sometimes there are four loaves. And the most important thing is that, you know, there are four gospels in the Christian scriptures, four different readings, and sometimes a particular gospel story only appears in one of those particular tellings of Jesus' life. Well, this story, versions of it, appear in three out of the four. That meant that it was really, really important to those early first small Christian communities. So what happens in this miracle story, the loaves and the fishes, is that Jesus is out teaching, the day comes to an end, the people are hungry, and Jesus turns to the apostles and said, in sort of the, maybe the first church potluck that ever was, feed them, feed the multitudes. And the disciples find out, in this one particular story, they have only five fish and two loaves. Next thing that happens is Jesus holds the food, what little food there is, up to heaven, blesses it, gives thanks for it. And then all of a sudden, the next thing we know in the story is that there's a lot of it. Everyone was fed. The thousands were fed so much so that we're told there were even leftovers. So how they get from a little to a lot in the story? What's at stake here? What's the significant thing? Well, I think the first thing that actually the story does tell us, and for those of you who are practicing day after day throughout this month of November, this 30 days of gratitude that we are doing on our Facebook page, if you haven't done it, I encourage you to go and take a look. It begins with gratitude. Jesus offers thanks. That's the first step for there being enough to feed the thousands. But being that every miracle story is a little bit of a of a question mark, a little bit of almost like a detective story, we have to look around maybe what we don't read in the text to find out how it actually came about. And this is how I read this story. That even beyond starting in gratitude, because we know that if fear divides, thankfulness multiplies, the fact that something didn't happen in the story, for me, makes the miracle absolutely possible. There are only those few loaves of bread and fishes. Imagine if it had happened this way instead. You had the first and possibly worst church potluck ever. Peter turns to James. You idiot. You were supposed to bring the bread. James turned to Andrew. Moron, where are the stupid fish? You can see how this starts to spread like wildfire. You know, this, this sense they're blaming each other. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. Panic becomes hoarding becomes jealousy, becomes people separating out from each other. Instead, 
because clearly that did not happen. I like to think that these first century Jews, because that's who the first Christians were, had a different word on their lips and in their hearts. It's a word that I'm not sure that they were familiar with, but it's a Hebrew word. It's a word that comes from the Seder traditions, from the Passover. The word is dayenu. If any of you have ever gone to a Seder or participated in a Seder, it roughly translates as, it is enough. It is sufficient. What was done is sufficient. That is the first step in any abundance mindset. What is here, who is here, is enough. Abundance is not about an objective total. It's not about an amount. It's about an inner reality. Not a fixed set, but a mindset. Abundance, as we hear in the story of the loaves and the fishes, where there's real gratitude, where there's not fear, where there's that implicit recognition that what is here is enough, an abundance mindset can, in fact, change what is around us and our external reality. And this gets at the heart of another one of Jesus' teachings that at first seems very, very cruel, even a little bit cryptic. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but Jesus says, the one who has much will get more, and the one who has little will have that taken away from them. (laughs) This is not Jesus saying, the rich will get rich and the poor will get poor. If we think about an abundance mindset, it actually does make sense. That the one who knows what they have is enough will be able to receive more. But the one who judges themselves or their surroundings not to be enough, nothing will ever be enough. And they will, in fact, get less. Abundance starts in this dayenu, this pronouncement, this enough is enough approach to living. The best articulation of the difference between what we might call a scarcity mindset and an abundance mindset is something I've shared with some of you before, and we use it in our 2.0 springboard, our small group for spiritual growth. And you show that right up here, maybe show the first slide. This is from a guy named Brent Kessel. Brent Kessel, who is a principal in the Abacus Financial Group, in addition to being someone who's responsible for hundreds of millions of other people's money in the markets, he's also someone who has studied meditation, been a yogi for decades in his life. And in talking about the difference between scarcity and abundance, he lays out two fundamental ways in his book called It's Not About the Money. And really, this is not about the money. This is about our mindset of viewing scarcity and abundance. The first he calls wanting mind, which is a Buddhist concept that says when we are driven, driven, and driven by our desires and don't take a time to unpack or look more deeply into the nature of our desires, we will always be wanting, 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 and never be satiated or find something or ourselves to be sufficient. The example he uses of this in the book, it's not about the money, is that he's started to invest with a client of his, a dentist who has $4 million in the market, and just a couple years later, the guy comes in for a meeting, and that $4 million has turned into $8 million, and Brent Kessel is thinking, well, you know, this guy's going to like his return, and he looks at his return, stone-faced looks up, he says, I'll be happy when there's $15 million in the account. That's wanting mine. It's the idea that, you know, at that point, that objective level, that's how I will be happy. The wanting mind has these qualities to it, and it's really about scarcity. It's predominantly self-concerned. Wanting mind is grandiose or omnipotent, usually requiring more financial resources than you can reasonably expect to have or an unrealistically short time frame. It is accompanied by a childlike urgency. It is comparative or competitive. 
Desires often feel like shoulds imposed by family, friends, or culture, and it is insatiable. Always, always, always unmet, out in front of us, insatiable. As soon as one desire is met, the wanting mind is just on to another one. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Different from that, Brent Kessel talks about heartfelt goals. A different way, where it's not about the money, it is about the money, but also about really who we are. Heartfelt goals usually include benefits to others as well, not just ourselves. They are realistic and achievable. They are characterized by patience. They originate from the inside. They are self-referenced. And finally, they have a sense of profound importance. I yearn to do or to have this before I die, which creates the conditions for more long-lasting fulfillment. That first slide is all about what some traditions talk about in terms of attachment. Must have, got to have, clingy, you know, clingy, really holding onto it so tightly that we almost crush what we hold in our hands. And that second slide is about a different way of living, more open-handed, more open-hearted. In my spiritual practice in the last few months, I've been working with a quote from Emerson, one of our great teachers in our Unitarian tradition. And this is also by the guy who preached very often and in a really sometimes obnoxious way about self-reliance. Don't depend on anyone else. It's all about you. Some of the worst parts of the self-help movement are directly attributable to Emerson. But there's this whole other side of Emerson as well, too. When asked to sum up his philosophy, his understanding of life, he put it this way. He said, I believe in acquiescence and optimism. Acquiescence and optimism. Acceptance and hope translated. But I, I, I wanted to show you a, a, the opposite. I wanted to show you the opposite today of what might be uh, resistance and pessimism. I wanted to show you an example of resistance and peps, pessimism, not what Emerson was talking about. And the person who, who, who personifies that more than the other is someone I'm going to show you in just a second here. Uh, it's Larry David's character on Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> if any of you know who he is. Larry David's every encounter on the show is like that. I don't know whether he's actually like that in real life. <laughs> but resistance, complaint, pessimism, and the way the show works, eventually that person he was rude to in the line in front of him in the ice cream shop, it comes back to bite him right in the keister. Resistance and pessimism. Never a feeling that anything is enough. So after showing you a negative example, I wanted to share with you a very positive one, one that touched my heart this past week. And I apologize, I'm not um, trying to tug or play on your heartstrings by sharing the second story week in a row of a child who died of cancer, but this really touched me this week. Let me show that slide. These are little paintings by a girl named Elena Deserich. Some of you may have heard her story, maybe not. She died of pediatric brain cancer at the age of six. Now, her parents never told her that she was dying. She had nine months of treatments, and eventually the treatments didn't work. But, you know, one of the reasons I like to teach about the examples of children is that very often kids, and very often sick kids, <laughs> can help break things down to the essentials in ways that we adults might forget. Well, Elena knew what was not told her. And so she spent, and it must have been a long time before she actually died, several months before she actually died, 
she went around and all throughout her house, she left cards to her family members, which only after she died did her parents realize that they were there. In briefcases, bookcases, little notes in drawers, all over. I love you, Mom and Dad. I love you, Gracie. That was her little sister. And very often, she liked to write to her dog as well, too. Years after Elena died, her parents are still finding those notes all over the place. Acquiescence and optimism. Acceptance and hope. Lena Deserich got that. And she gifted her family who misses her so much with the kind of love that is truly stronger than death. See, because acquiescence on its own isn't necessarily any good. It's, it's neutral. We can acquiesce to the wrong things. We can acquiesce to people who want to cause us damage or pain. I mean, that's not worth acquiescing to. But finding the right things to surrender to, finding the right ways of giving up control, but sharing who we are, that is in some ways the deepest spiritual call that there is. And this is what abundance is all about. Recently, I was rereading... Thoreau's Walden, one of our other great teachers, very often linked with Emerson. And it's the part simply called economy, (laughs) something that causes many of us anxiety and travail these days. And Thoreau's age was just as difficult economically as ours was, more difficult. If you read the history of 19th century economic policy, it's all boom, all bust, banks are going failing all the time, going belly up. And so this was Thoreau's good word to his day, as important for ours. He writes, I think that we may safely trust a good deal more than we do. The incessant anxiety and strain of some is a well-nigh incurable form of disease. How vigilant we are. How vigilant we are determined not to live by faith if we can avoid it at all living by faith. All the day long on alert, at night we unwillingly say our prayers and commit ourselves to uncertainties. What Thoreau was talking about is what we know in our day is the kind of trust that is necessary to learn to let go. Letting go of our efforts, letting go of our work, not raising up the importance of what we do to the point where it's so important where only we are the ones who can take care of it, but learning to let go. This is actually part of many different traditions throughout the world. And it comes with some language we may not be all that familiar with, but maybe you are. It's actually the path of renunciation so that we are able to affirm something on an even deeper level. This guy named Richard Rohr, who's a Catholic priest who I absolutely love, and he's so progressive I really cannot believe that he has not been kicked out of this current form of the church because he's always in trouble. He's always in trouble for pushing the boundaries of the church. And he's talking about this path of living with true abundance and the fact that it can be very uncomfortable for us. He said, people in the developed world have been trained in power and performance principles, but very often not at all in a spirituality of imperfection, of detachment, of letting go, and least of all, 
any kind of surrender. It sounds like losing, and we do not like that. Surrender to Western or to comfortable people sounds like losing when it's actually accessing a deeper, broader sense of the self, which is already content and already totally abundant. We would call this, he concludes, the true self or who you are in God. This paradigm shift from the wanting mind to the heartfelt goals. From recognizing that some of the things that we cling to can hold us back and hold us up from that deeper affirmation of our core being where what is there is enough. See, renunciation to our egos, and I can attest to this in my own life, renunciation to our egos will only feel like punishment. Even if it's an internal dialogue, but especially if someone else is telling you this, like maybe you're feeling about me right now. What do you mean I can't have this? I deserve this. I want this. It's the voice of the ego. But to learn to let go from that place that Thoreau was talking about, Richard Rohr was talking about, is to learn to let go at the level of the soul and also to say yes and affirm our life in the deepest way possible. For me, this is not at all theoretical, folks. I wouldn't be here and I would not be the person I am today unless I learned the path of renunciation so I could affirm something deeper about myself and about life. This maps perfectly upon what Richard Rohr said upon the first steps I took in sobriety. There was just no other way around it for me, finally. There had to be something that I was willing to renounce, some part of myself that was injured and loved to hold on and loved to be clingy and loved to say, this is who I am and this is all I'm going to get. But that path of renunciation was absolutely necessary if I was ever going to be the kind of person who could stand up here with any integrity and affirm something deeper than who I was. Because it's not just about saying the words. For me, it's about trying to live what we and who we want to be here together. Maybe alcohol or drugs or substances isn't your thing. But I think, you know, for others, there's always some way that we can understand letting go and understanding a deeper love. For those of you who are loving parents, for those of you who are parents, you understand that as kids grow up, it is very much about letting go. You have done your best, or at least tried to. And you have to trust they're beyond your control. People who have spent time mindfully around the dying as a pure, loving, mindful presence know that we have to renounce control. And then we renounce control at one level. There is actually a deeper yes, a deeper affirmation there as well. We renounce control so that something else can bubble up. Something else that only can be met from a place of love and trust. And that we will know then will be enough. When we approach something, but even more someone or some experience in this way. We approach it with gratitude and open heartedness. And with our heartfelt goals. Well, then we start to know what the meaning of the loaves and the fishes really was. That it's enough. To make this sort of even a little bit more 
real for us, the place that a lot of us, especially in this time and age, experience wrestling with what is enough or the fear of what is not enough is our relationship with our money, our relationship with our 401ks, our relationship with our cash on hand, with how liquid we are. And actually, this is the exact reason that Wellsprings encourages all our members here in this community to make giving a spiritual practice, a regular spiritual practice, not just something we think about every once in a while, because the goal for all of us together in this community is to ask, are we speaking true words about ourselves, revealing who we really are in our relationship with our money? And I'm not just talking about sometimes that we lie about ourselves with unhealthy spending or spending that we think will make us happy when it really doesn't, so we just keep on spending, or unpaid bills that just stay away and we sort of stay out of sight, out of mind, or the kind of bad credit that can come around because we're not paying attention to who we are. Because at the deepest level, if our relationship with money causes us anxiety and fear and travail, so often it can be because, like the wanting mind, we have allowed our models of what feels like enough to be someone else's models or what we perceive to be their models. This is where all greed begins. Material greed, emotional greed, and yes, even spiritual greed, that other people have it figured out and you're just a mess and only if you could be like them, then you would be whole and then you would be okay. This is the deepest kind of despair in some ways, because when we look at someone else's life and want not just what they have, but we want to be them, we then waste our lives wanting, coveting, yearning to be what we are not, rather than growing to share who we are. And so day after day after day, just as we encourage spiritual practice, this kind of mindfulness with money reacquaints us with what really is enough for us. Anything that we are in regular touch with equips us to face what is a very old and ancient word and something we don't hear so often in our tradition. The Greek is called metanoia. And too often it's translated as conversion. Are you converted? Are you saved? (laughs) That kind of thing. Once and done. Bang. There you go. Go to heaven, collect your $200. You're on your way. Well, (laughs) metanoia conversion actually has a deeper meaning and it's something only done day after day after day after day with our mindfulness and with our sense of being enough right there right then we sing it sometimes very often turning that is what conversion means turn 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 sometimes almost imperceptibly slow but turning in the way we wish to turn so that as the saying says we can be the change that we would hope to see in this existence. And the thing about that song, turn, 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 if there is a time for every purpose and everything under heaven, if there's enough, hey, if a six-year-old who's dying of brain cancer can find a way to say her life is enough, then perhaps we should as well. If there's a time for every purpose under heaven, if there's enough, then really we don't have to be stressed out. If we believe there's enough, this mindset allows abundance to flourish within us and even, in fact, change the circumstances in which we find ourselves. This past summer, Teresa and I, my wife and I, were in Boston on vacation. And we did the traditional touristy thing. We woke up from our hotel, went to Faneuil Hall. I bought a completely overpriced but still very delicious plate of Ipswich deep-fried clams, which I'm sure I'll be 
continuing to pay for it with some kind of heart surgery at some point later in my life. But it was absolutely just wonderful and delicious, and it was a lot of fun. But Faneuil Hall was just so crowded. Have you ever been there in Boston? You know, the, the stalls, especially during a summer day, it's just everything was 10, 20, 15 deep. And we decided, well, okay, let's leave here and maybe go over to the aquarium. And that's something I really fond remembrances of from when I was a kid. But we heard it was really packed over there, too. And I do have to say that, actually, after... I've had some experience in zoos and aquariums over the years that started to make me a little sad. I don't know if you remember this. Um, a few years ago, a zoo I used to go to a lot when I was living in New York City was the one in Central Park, which is sort of like a mini aquarium as well, too. And there was this amazing, or so I thought, amazing polar bear that would, would actually swim laps. I mean, do a little backstroke and do a little freestyle and would do a flip turn like you'd see, you know, Michael Phelps doing a flip turn. I thought, my God, this is, this is amazing. He's channeling us. He's channeling the humans that this polar bear's around so, so long, so, uh, for so, so much around time. Well, the problem was is that this polar bear had become so deeply neurotic by its confinement that, in fact, it was doing this to compensate for the fact that it felt caged in and trapped. So actually, zoos and aquariums, eh, not as big on as I used to be. So we decided, let's skip all that. Let's just walk through Boston Commons. And I love that, that, that word because we really saw it that day, commons a place where everyone would gather on this beautiful 75-degree day, people from all races and classes and, and old and young and all kinds of different people just out and enjoying themselves. No sense of privacy or being set apart, but just everyone was there together. It was a gorgeous day. And then we made our way, as those ducklings did long ago in that story, to the public gardens. You know, make way for duckling, right? Yeah? And we spent, Teresa and I did, the next hour sitting and watching the ducks. That's it. Without a doubt, yes, it was the high point of our vacation. It cost us nothing. It cost us absolutely nothing. I try to remember within myself those moments of the non-grasping, of the receiving, to remind myself what true happiness is. And I know, I mean, it's a luxury. We were there on vacation. We were staying in a hotel every night. This is money that we were able to spend. But as I remember what the high point of that vacation was and what truly felt like sustenance, what truly felt like the Dianu moment, the enough moment, I would like to apply this test to all of my material goods and all of my experience to say they are only as good as they reach back into the stuff that is immaterial into the stuff that is truly dainu, the stuff that is truly abundant. It's too often I've heard stories, you know, people that go on vacation and the, this museum is closed or that museum is closed and that friend wasn't there and it rains all the time and they haven't even left that vacation before they've already planning, started planning the next one, even if it's money they don't have to spend. See, this is how the enough mindset actually can change and alter our objective reality. If we see that what we experience is enough, we won't be craving and craving and craving the next experience, perhaps at time extending ourselves beyond where it is wise to extend ourselves. If we have enough, then we will know enough. And we won't be always wanting for something that is not ours. This kind of grace that I experienced in the public gardens there in Boston with the ducks was a grace and an experience of gratitude. And it was just another word, as I understood it, for the deepest and most authentic kind of freedom that we as human beings can have. 
This kind of freedom is our deepest affirmation, and it draws us back and draws me back to the beginning of this message, to the mystery at the heart of the miracle and the loaves and the fishes. How really did they have enough? How really did they get from very, very little to a lot? How did they not give in to scarcity thinking and fear and hoarding and judgment and accusation? But how did they feed those multitudes and those thousands? It wasn't just because they thought they had enough. The final secret of the loaves and the fishes miracle is this. It wasn't that they had enough. It was that they were enough. They themselves were enough. Because imagine it. Jesus hands off the loaves and the fishes. That's all they got. And maybe some people see that in the crowd there, instead of hoarding, they started sharing. And they start to unpack what they're carrying themselves. And it turns out they have other loaves and they have other fishes. And they see people acting and behaving as if what they had and who they are was enough. And the light of one person being enough is reflected in the light of another person being enough. And the light of another person being enough. And the light of another person being enough. Just as dis-ease and unhealth runs through systems, so does health and so does wholeness run through systems as well. When enough people, and you can always figure out the tipping point of this, but when enough people affirm enough of their own enoughness, they get together. And then the real miracles can happen. The real miracles of healing and of feeding and of wholeness and of spirit, they then can occur. Now it starts by thinking, not just thinking, believing that we are enough. You are enough. We know that the greatest promise of abundance is not getting all that you can or having all that you want. But the greatest promise of abundance is this. It is being the whole of who you are. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Original source in this universe of abundance, may we cultivate within our own hearts and minds and spirits the practice of Dainu. That we might look upon not just our surroundings, but look deep within ourselves and pronounce there, it is enough. May we live out May we live out from this place of deepest affirmation, knowing that we can and trusting that we can let go of the stuff that is not necessary for life and pouring our hearts, our spirits, our hopes into those most elemental parts of our being that are enough. When we live from this place, we know that we can see this in others. And then truly indeed, miracles of love and compassion. They are ours to experience. And even more, these miracles are ours to share. Amen.